when I was in stage band in high school. We had an award-winning jazz band, and it wasn't because of the guitar player, let me tell you that. But we did have some amazing musicians. We had a bass player that was amazing. Uh, ben was awesome on the, uh, on the bass, you know, jazz, big band jazz, you know. Uh, you know. So we, we did a lot of Glenn Miller and, you know, Tommy Dorsey and all that stuff. Uh, but we, we like won uh, like state championship level uh, jazz band. But uh, I'll never forget um, when, uh, you know, we would do stuff. Whenever we had a substitute, we would always switch instruments. It was really funny. Um, you know, I would get on the drum set and the, the saxophone player would get my guitar and then we'd all just swip, switch. So the, the, you know, the, the substitute would come in thinking, here's this award-winning jazz band, you know, and he'd, he was so excited to lead us and, you know, one, two, one, two, three. It just sounded horrible, you know, and, and we thought that was really funny. Um, but as it turns out, one time our jazz band instructor, the, the real teacher was actually there watching behind the wings. He was actually in the room. <laughs> <laughs> and we didn't know he was there. So we're messing around and, and he came in and he was as red as a tomato, Mr. Cantola. He got really upset with us. And when he'd get mad at the jazz band, he'd turn bright red and he, and he was kind of almost going purple on, on that particular uh, engagement because he was right there and saw it with his own eyes. Um, and we were horrified. We knew we were in big trouble. And I, I think about that sometimes. Did you know that God sees everything that you and I, that we all do, everything's open. And that's kind of the theme that Isaiah is bringing out. Here in our text, we've got this uh, description here in chapter 47, again, describing the destruction of Babylon. Now, Babylon, of course, uh, has so much significance in the Bible, but um, both in ancient times during Isaiah's time as Babylon was an up and coming power in the world, but also uh, in future events, Babylon has much meaning as far as all that goes as well. And so um, we'll see on Wednesday night that this is the Lord's you know, uh, assurance of Babylon's fall. That's what this chapter is really about, is the fall of Babylon. Um, so he's talking about these Babylonian unbelieving people. And uh, we'll see more about that in depth on Wednesday night. But there's one little verse I'd like to show you um, that speaks to two issues that I, that I think the Lord's put on my heart tonight for us. And uh, it's right here in chapter 47, verse 10. Let's take a look at this text here. Isaiah 47, 10. It says, therefore, thou hast trusted in thy wickedness. Thou hast said, none seeth me. Thy wisdom and thy knowledge, it hath perverted thee. And thou hast said in thine heart, I am and none else beside me. Again, for thou hast trusted in thy wickedness. Thou hast said, none sees me. Thy wisdom and knowledge, it hath perverted thee. And thou hast said in thine heart, I am and none else beside me. Interesting little word there, I am, because it echoes back to the book of Exodus when the Lord told Moses, I am that I am. And here this Babylonian secular atheist dude is saying, no, I am. I'm all that matters. I'm the thing that, that is important here. And he says, there's no one else beside me. See, this language is very God-esque, isn't it? I am, there is none else. If you've been with us in Isaiah, we've been seeing there is none else. The Lord says that, you know, in, in chapter 45, verse five, I am the Lord, there is none else. That's what he said. In chapter 44, uh, verse six, he says, I am the first, I am the last, and beside me there is no God. But here, this person, he's sort of taking the place of God by saying, I am 
and there's none else beside moi, yours truly. It's basically flying in the face of what God says to his people and this individual saying, no, I am. There is nobody but me really that matters. It's all about me. Who is this that's saying this? Well, it's a person who's wicked and it's a person who trusts in their own wickedness. They, they think they're, they're doing something good or something right or whatever. Uh, they don't care. They're not convicted about their own sinful, wicked behavior. And they say in their heart, nobody sees what I'm doing except for me. I'm the only one that matters. Uh, you know, if it's good for me, it's good for everybody. And then it says, I am, there's none beside me. This is, this is the um, most, I think, arrogant, most prideful position a person can take in all the cosmos, not acknowledging that there's a true and living God. You see, in this text, the first thing I wanna consider is number one, the atheist. And then secondly, we'll consider the believer because this doesn't leave us alone entirely either as Christians. I think there's much to learn from this verse. But first let's consider the atheist. Um, now the atheist, uh, um, atheism. Theist means of course, it speaks of God. Ah is the negative, no God, atheist. Um, and that's really what an atheist is. Now an agnostic is uh, that word agonosco, which is uh, the sort of the Latin. Um, I, I, always, I always sort of chuckle when I hear people say, I'm agnostic, um, because it sounds so you know, intellectual, I'm, I'm an agnostic. Which they're saying basically, you know, nobody can really know if God exists. There's no way to know if there's really a God, so you're agnostic. It's sort of like atheist light if you're an agnostic. But the Latin translation of the word agnostic is literally ignoramus. <laughs> so when people say I'm agnostic, um, I'd be a little embarrassed to call myself that. Uh, an ignoramus, that's the word, I'm, you can look it up. But all that to say, the person that says there is no God, or even the agnostic that says, um, you know, agnosco, ought to know knowing or no knowledge is the word agnostic. Either way, it's denying the truth that there is a God. And what's interesting about this is, is the idea of, of God, even though the atheists sort of pridefully oftentimes will say, you know, you, you people that have a need for a God, the opiate of the masses. You know, by the way, Marxism, socialism is on the rise. Everybody kind of knows that now. Uh, Antifa and Black Lives Matter, total Marxist group. Um, one of the, the main things about those those groups, you have to understand, is they're atheistic. They're, they're, uh, they you know, follow more of a Karl Marx sort of worldview. That's what always amazes me that all these Christians are jumping on board with these groups and organizations that are really anti-God. They just don't believe in God. Or um, I'll talk about do they really believe in God or not here in a second. But you know, the, the problem is whether it's you know, Marx or Freud or you know, Feuerbach, uh, there's, there's sort of this um, notion that, that humans have this need to, or even have the capacity to invent religion, to invent God. Um, and that's their biggest argument. You know, they say that humans have a need to invent God. And that's why they would say most humanity invents God. Um, because most of the humanity does, is not atheist. The, the percentage is actually quite a bit smaller than uh, those that actually believe in God, especially if you look at the world in its history. By far, more people have believed in a God of some kind, whether it's the true and living God 
or gods that they made up in their own brains. But the truth is uh, most people throughout the ages believe that there's a God. And so they say, you know, that's the human need is to invent God. Now, um, here's the thing. I, I won't quarrel with Feuerbach and Marx and, uh, you know, Freud, the fraud. I won't argue with them uh, as much. In fact, you know, um, I think God gave you and me and us the ability to dream and imagine and create and invent uh, and project like all these things that we have the, the propensity to do, that, that's a God-given thing. And, and, you know, we can admit that, that man has this, maybe even a psychological motive. Um, see, that's what Marx and those guys said, a psychological motive means an opportunity to invent God. And that's their argument, that we, we try to invent God. Now, sideline for a second. If, if man were, were to just invent God, what would he look like? Well, there's a lot of examples of that in the world. But I don't think it would look like the God of the Bible, that, you know, the God of Scripture where there's heaven and hell, obedience, righteousness, and wrath, and love, and compassion. Like, I'm, I'm not sure that's just a, would be the natural creation of the human version of God. I think that that's very unique. The, the, the true and living God that we believe in uh, wouldn't be the natural one we just create or make up. Um, you see that in the New Ager, you know, that says, I am God, or the goddess within, or uh, God, that I like to think of him more as a her, as people say. And, and you'll see all kinds of people inventing who they think God is. But um, the idea of, of the, the, there's a psychological motive, means, and opportunity for humanity to invent God. You know, if we give this argument to the atheist, to the, the, um, the intellectuals that say, you know, that... Um, people that believe in a God are weak, stupid, simple-minded. If we give them this argument, then they, they, they need to consider, I think, two things, two things. And if you're an atheist, would you, would you be kind enough just to consider this just for, just for a few minutes at least? But just because man has the ability to invent God doesn't mean that that's actually how the idea of God came about. Um, in other words, you know, it, it's, it's interesting that most of humanity has this need, almost, you could call it instinctively, to believe in God. Just in the same way that you and I instinctively um, know that you gotta eat, or know that you gotta sleep, or that there's, there must be romance and procreation, and we have these, you know, it's like birds know how to fly south in the winter. What is it that puts it within all of creation to do things? If you're an atheist, you think that that's just some, you know, accidental set of circumstances and that humanity has this need, just like we have the need to, you know, do a lot of things, breathe. We have a need to do that. But isn't it interesting that a lot of those things are at our very survival? Instinctively, we do things so that we can survive. Could it be that the idea of God is part of our instinctive, and I would say God-given, but even if we give you it for a second and say, you know, this, this, this instinctive desire to believe in a God, could that be something that has to do with our existence and even our living? Just because man has the ability to invent God does not mean that's how the idea of God came about. Number two, it's also more than possible that the world is incurably religious because there is a God who has so cleverly and clearly manifestly demonstrated his existence to all of mankind 
that knowledge of him is virtually inescapable. It's just that possible. I'm willing to grant you that I have a vested interest in believing God, but, but I believe you need to grant me that there's also a powerful psychological motive that many people have to deny the existence of God. The same, you gotta, if, if I'm gonna give you that argument, you also have to give me that you as an atheist, as a non-believing person, you have to understand you have the same and maybe even perhaps a more powerful need that God doesn't exist. Because if you think about if I'm right, I get to go to heaven and live with my Lord for all eternity and he created me for his purpose. And man, it's just all a big win for me. But if, if you're wrong, man, the situation's dire and horrifying. If God exists and the, the God of the Bible is true, then you kind of need to think about, boy, why is there this burning desire within humanity to, to believe in God? And why would I push against that so hard? So there's a powerful psychological motive that people have to deny the existence of God. The worst news that people could ever discover is there's a God who will hold us accountable for our sins. <laughs> there can be a bias in the other direction. You know, if, I, if I've lived in total alienation from God and walked against his truth, then I better hope that God doesn't exist because the dire circumstances at the end of that's not gonna be good. So the main point there just that I'm trying to make is you know, the, the question of the existence of God can never be resolved based on our psychology or our psychological needs. It, it needs to be answered on the basis of other grounds, I think. And, and I think that that sort of cancels out the argument between the atheist and the Christian as far as the psychological need. But what's interesting is the Bible gives us in the New Testament particularly a very rational explanation as to why there's a negative bias in the human heart that wants to resist the existence of God. And that's the person that's talked about right here in Isaiah 47.10. You know, they trust in their own wickedness and said, nobody sees me. Um, uh, thy wisdom and knowledge has perverted thee. In other words, they're so smart for, the, they're too smart for their own good. Their worldview is perverted or tweaked because their own knowledge gets in the way of knowing what is really true. And thou hast said in your heart, I am, there is none else beside me. You're in place of God. That's what the atheist does. While atheists claim to have no religion, in a sense, they are their own God. They're, they're, they're the God of their own universe, of their little brain. Uh, that's just the truth. Atheism is a religion, whether people wanna you know, admit it or not. Um, Psalm 53, one says, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. An atheist was complaining to a bunch of Christians that their special days as Christmas and Easter and on, on, you know, the Jews celebrate Passover. But he said, we atheists, he said, we have no recognized national holiday. It's not fair. One of the, one of the man's friends said, well, I've got an idea. Why don't you just celebrate it on April 1st? <laughs> April Fool's Day. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Um, so what do you do with that? Well, Let's go, would you keep your finger here and go with me to Romans chapter one. And there in Romans chapter one, Paul the apostle nails it down. Why do people resist God? What's the, what's the, whole, um, the whole reasoning there? Romans chapter one. We'll start in verse 18. Romans 1, 18. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, 
and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Now, before we read on there, the word wrath there is an interesting word, not to be weird about this, but the word in the Greek is orge, and it's where we get our word orgy. Huh? But the what? The orge of God. The idea is, you know, the word or, orgy is an unbridled passion. And in this, and in this sense, it means an unbridled <clears throat> fury. That God is passionate when it comes to his wrath. And there's no holding back on that. The word is unbridled passion in the sense of unbridled fury. We can't really understand how wonderful God's grace is, by the way, until we understand the reality of God's orge when it comes to wrath, this, this unbridled, horrifying wrath. And that's reserved, it says here, it's revealed from heaven against all those that are ungodly. Boy, people are in trouble. But let's read on, verse 19. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. In verse 19, humans basically are suppressing a knowledge of God. That's what it says, because that which may be known of God is manifest. The word manifest, made known. That which is known of God has been made known by God, is the idea there. In those people, God had showed, he showed it to them. See, here's the thing, before we read on in this, stay here in Romans, but um, one of the things you might do when you talk to an atheist, and um, you know, I've actually had more success with this than I have coming with a logical argument or a scientific argument, even though you can do the logical and scientific argument for a true and living God. Um, one of the things that I've noticed is um, sometimes just saying, you know, we've talked about science, we've talked about the existence of God and Marxism and all this stuff, but the truth is, you really do believe in God. You believe in God. Um, uh, you know, I think it was Christopher Hitchens was in a debate once, and uh, he kind of actually had to admit at one point that he sort of believed in a God's existence, which he's like the last guy on the planet who was, who was uh, uh, willing to admit that. But there, there's a point in, in an argument where somebody has to say, I kind of really do believe in God. Um, why would you use that tactic, Brett? An atheist says, I don't believe in God, but, but the problem is in their heart, in their mind, they're wrestling. In their soul, they're wrestling with God's existence. And there's an instinctive, just as birds fly south for the winter, just as you have a desire when you're thirsty, just like when someone craves something that God has created that we should be doing in, in life, that same power, that same drive is in you to believe in God's existence because God has made himself known to everyone. So look for that door of opportunity when you're talking to the atheist or the agnostic saying, you know, truthfully, you, whether you want to admit it or not, you really do believe in God. And uh, if they're honest, they'll say, well, I wrestle with that. I, I have to resist the temptation to believe. That's what Carl Sagan said on his deathbed. You guys remember Carl Sagan? The, the, you know, billions and billions of years guy, the evolution guy, um, he, he said, I'm gonna resist the temptation to believe. That temptation was 
built in by God. God revealed himself to Carl Sagan and to the atheists. And that's what the Bible says. He's clearly revealed the Godhead so that they are without excuse. There's no excuse. There will be no excuse. When the atheist sometimes stands before God someday, all those hours they spent resisting God's loving call on their heart, saying, I'm here, tap, tap, tap. Look at the stars of the sky. That's not just something that happened by a big bang. Look at the trees and the animals and look at, look at what God has done in the creation of this world. All creation speaks of his glory and for you to push that down and say, no, 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 that's not God. It's just happened by accidental circumstances. You're resisting God. And the Bible says, you're not gonna have an excuse. Sorry, God, I, you know, I just didn't know. Uh, you can't say that. No one will be able to say that when they stand before God. That's what he says in verses 19 and 20. And then in verse 21, it says, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their foolish imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. The single sin that will bring this unbridled wrath of God is basically trying to resist the truth of God's existence. That's the one thing that's gonna send a person to hell. Well, if God is love, he won't send people to hell. Correct, God has done everything to keep you out of hell. He, he sent his son to die on a cross substitutionarily to pay the penalty for your sin. All of your unrighteousness that you deserve to be judged for, God says, I love the world so much that I gave my only begotten son. And anyone who believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the love of God. But if somebody resists, 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 resists God day in, day out, they're gonna find themselves, well, their foolish minds have become darkened. They think they're wise, but they're really deceived and they've become fools. That's what the scriptures say, Romans 21 and 22. But it goes on, verse 23. And it says, these people have changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an Im image made like to corruptible man, to birds and four-footed beasts, creeping things, wherefore God gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. Worshiping the creature more than the creator. The atheist worships their own brain. If they can't figure it all out and if they can't mathematically you know, nail it all down, they're unwilling to believe in a God where God says, I've revealed myself to you through creation and you are without excuse. And the more a person tries to fight against that, the, the more they're just dooming themselves. I've always been stunned you know, to see people who turn from faith. You know, there's over this last year, I've noticed a bunch of so-called Christian leaders, worship leaders and speakers and bloggers and all these people who shouldn't have been in ministry to begin with, but they're there. And, and, and we've seen by the droves, these people, you know, denying their faith and saying, I just don't know if I believe anymore. You know, the, you know, band leaders, worship leaders, book writers in Christian book circles and all this stuff. And, and it's so heartbreaking to me because when you hear their reasons of why they neglect or reject God, 
They can come up with all kinds of things that they're saying, but the truth is it gets right down to Romans chapter one. They, they have professed themselves to be wise, but their foolish heart was darkened and, they've given, and God is giving them over to their own lustful um, desires, their own you know, way of making God in their own image. I don't know if I like to think of God as this. Doesn't matter. God is God and you're not. And it's so heartbreaking because I, I wonder if they ever really had faith to begin with. But the truth is, um, God has revealed himself to all people. Even the most devout atheist, the argument is not there. So suppression, substitution, that's been the pattern throughout history for the atheist. Suppress the truth, substitute creation in the place of the creator. And that's the biggest mistake a person can make. So first we consider the atheist that really, man, you need to believe. You gotta just go with what God instinctively put in your heart. If there's still hope for you, you all you gotta do is repent and say, okay, I, I know that I've been battling against God. You, some of you know that. Maybe you're watching tonight and you just tuned in for whatever reason and you're, you're a self-proclaimed atheist, but you know what I'm saying in the quiet of your own house with your iPhone buzzing right now, um, you know that God exists. And you've been making your arguments and you think you're really, really smart but in a moment of quietness, you know you're not that smart. And you know that God has been tapping on your shoulder since you were a little kid. And I would tell you just to let the Lord into your life. Best decision you'll ever make is to stop resisting and start accepting what God has given. Even as you instinctively, when you get thirsty and you wanna drink of ice cold water and then that water hits your tongue, you're like, oh, that's so good. Even so, more so, if you give up your fight against God and you say, I'm gonna taste and see, it'll make water look like nothing when you start to drink in of the goodness of the Lord. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, the Bible says. Don't resist any longer. Resisting is lame, tiresome, and deadly eternally. Giving your heart to the Lord, that's where it's at. So here, this, this person that Isaiah is mentioning is the person that says, I'm God, basically. I'm the only one. There is no other. Nobody sees what I'm doing. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, and my wisdom and knowledge, that's all I need. But, but Isaiah says, no, that's what perverts you. You're perverted by your own wisdom and your own knowledge. What a, what a perfect description for much of our world today. Many of the problems that we're seeing in the news today are really the results of verse 10 of chapter 47 of Isaiah. People wise in their own conceits, doing what they think is right and excluding God from all things. That's just wrong and sinful. I hope people will repent, turn to the true and living God. But the second consideration, first we consider the atheist, but next we consider the, the believer. And see, there's a, there's a tendency after you accept Christ and become a Christian, there's also a tendency for you and me to sort of go back to that resisting God and almost trying to forget that he's there. In, in some ways, we wanna consider ourselves you know, in charge of our own destiny and, and that we're really in charge. You know, um, you can almost stick with this verse, for thou hast trusted in thy wickedness and said, none seeth me. Have you ever just kind of forgot that God sees you? Like my band leader who was watching us swap instruments right before his very eyes and we thought he would never find out that the substitute teacher wouldn't know what happened 
I wonder if there's gonna be that moment in eternity when you stand before God and it's almost like you're there with your hand on the cookie jar going, I thought you weren't looking. I thought you didn't see. But the truth is, the Lord sees all things. Like the atheist who thinks God doesn't see, the Christian can also make that same goofy error. But God sees everything. Mark down some of these scriptures. These are big ones. First, you know, of course, you can jot down uh, Hebrews chapter four, verse 13, where it says this. It says, neither is there any creature, that's part of creation, that is not manifest or made known in his sight, but all things are naked and open under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. That's a mouthful. His eyes are open uh, of, of the one who sees us with whom we have to do. That's God sees it all. You can think you're doing stuff covertly and God doesn't see, but the Bible says, nope, he sees it all. Matthew chapter 12, verse 36 says this. It says, but I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. Have you ever thought about that? The idle words, when, when I think of an idle word, it's like an, a word that I think nobody's hearing. Just idle words, I'm mumbling to myself. Um, but actually, those idle words, the Lord says, yeah, I hear them all. Every word that comes out of your mouth. In fact, the Lord knows your thoughts and even the intent of your heart, the Bible says. He knows your very intention. So you could be doing something externally that looks very big hearted and Christian, but if your motive is wrong, God sees all that. Everything's open and naked before him with whom we have to do. Every idle word he sees. You're driving down the freeway and somebody cuts you off and you're imagining in your mind missiles being fired at their car, blowing them up and clearing the path for you to get to where you're going. God saw that. He saw what was in your brain. Um, you know, that the, the evil that's in our hearts, the Lord sees all those things. It's kind of intimidating when you think about it. Everything is open before him with whom we have to do. Psalm chapter 90, verse eight says, thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins in the light of thy countenance. Secret sins? Yep, your secret sins. What are your secret sins? Well, I'm not telling you, Brett. Well, I'm not gonna tell you mine either. <laughs> we, we like to keep those secret, right? But did you know there's no such thing that your secret sins, according to Psalm 90, verse eight, are seen. And boy, are there examples of that in the Bible? Just ask Adam and Eve. They're in the Garden of Eden. As they ate of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, suddenly they realized they were naked and they hid themselves because they were afraid. Hiding from God, is that a good idea? You know, um, God shows up in the scene and says, Adam and Eve, where are you? Did God lose Adam and Eve? <laughs> this cracks me up. Two people on the earth, and the Lord's like, oh man, what'd I do with those, those two people? Uh, have I lost them already? Uh, no, that wasn't God. It's not that God had lost Adam and Eve geographically, but he knew he had lost them to sin, that they had left him in their sin. And they thought they could hide themselves. They thought they could cover themselves with sewn together fig leaves. Now, when we go to Israel, there's a place I like to show our tour groups. Uh, when we go to Tel Dan, there's a little fig tree grove there that's Middle East fig trees, but you can feel the leaves. 
bad idea making fig leaf garments, man. They, you know the fig leaves, they have this little prickly hair follicle stuff on it that's really, uh, like if you brush it up against your skin, it's very irritating. And it's the last thing in the world. I almost rather have poison oak uh, sewn together <laughs> as garments than what Adam and Eve used. They used these, and the Lord had compassion, of course, and, you know, uh, made skins uh, to cover their nakedness. But Adam and Eve, the list is long of believers who somehow forgot that the Lord sees all things. Just ask Adam and Eve. What about Moses? Remember Moses when he slew the Egyptian, buried him in the sand, thought he'd gotten away with the sin. When, you know, he sees an Egyptian chiding against an Israeli, he says, hey, stop that. And they, what are you gonna do, kill us like you killed the Egyptian? What? How do they know? How do, how's my sin be revealed? The Bible says, be sure of this, your sin will find you out. Your sins are open. Moses thought he pulled it, pulled it off that he murdered the Egyptian, but God saw it and it was eventually revealed. What about Achan? Achan, who there in the book of Joshua stole of the cursed thing and hid it under his tent. And because of the evil that he had done, man, the, the people of Israel died a brutal death in battle because of Achan's sin. And eventually Achan was singled out among all the congregation of Israel as the one who did the evil deed. And he thought he was gonna pull it off. He thought he could hide his secret sins. What about David and Bathsheba? Boy, talk about secret sins. You know, um, it's interesting because David thought that he was pulling off hiding, keeping quiet about his sin. You know the story, he slept with Bathsheba, another man's wife. While he was off, Uriah, her husband, was off fighting battles. David slept with Bathsheba. She becomes pregnant and now he's in trouble. So he, he murders Uriah, the, the husband of Bathsheba, and then marries you know, Bathsheba before, before Uriah's body's even cold. David and Bathsheba are married. And they sit around, ha ha, I got away with that. Nobody knows. It's interesting because, do you ever feel relieved when you feel like you've per pulled off your sin? Do you ever feel like, oh man, I did it, nobody knows. Let, let me read to you what David was thinking. Um, this comes from Psalm 32. It says, blessed is he whose sins are forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whose the Lord imputeth not iniquity, whose spirit there's no deceit. Listen to this. When I kept silence, when he was covering up his sin, when I kept silence, my bones waxed old, though my roaring all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. But then I acknowledged my sin unto you and my iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sins. David also said in Psalm 19, verse 12, he said, who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me of my secret faults. David knew that God saw his sins and he knew that Psalm 32, Psalm 19, verse uh, 12. How did David know that? Well, he knew it even when he was trying to keep the secret, the Lord's hand was heavy on him and he felt dry and messed up. See, here's the problem. If you're pulling off secret sins that nobody knows about and you think the Lord doesn't see it, but you're wondering why am I so depressed and why is everything so heavy and why are things such a bummer? Maybe you should think about confessing your sins to the Lord. 
and being open and revealing those things to him and saying, because he knows it already. Maybe that heaviness is the drought of summer that David was talking about. But then when he finally revealed his sin and said, Lord, cleanse thou me of all my secret sins. Then he felt new. He felt good. The Lord blessed him. David knew what it was like to try to cover up sin before God. And it's just a total fool's errand. What about Ananias and Sapphira? Let's go to the New Testament. Remember them? Oh, we've given all of our possessions and given to the Lord here. And they both keeled over dead in the New Testament church because they, they were lying. They didn't give all their stuff. They, they kept some for themselves. They lied. So, so you say, okay, Brett, this, this is kind of scary. Uh, the atheist, I was kind of with you. They need to believe in God, not think that they're God. But me, what does this have to do with me? Well, if you're trusting in your own wickedness and you've said, no one sees me, I'm covering it up and I'm pulling it off and I'm getting away with my sin, then you're like these believers in the Bible who thought God just doesn't see. They don't realize that everything's naked and open before him with whom we have to do. And I would say that maybe that's one of the most miserable places for a person to live is in that position of trying to cover up sin, trying to get get away with it, trying to pull it off and thinking they're getting away with it only to find themselves totally miserable. Man, I see this in people as a pastor over years. I've seen that in, in my own experience, but also in watching people. You know, people start living in sin and doing stuff behind the scenes secretively, and then they, they don't start not getting along with their, their spouse. Their marriage goes bad, but they think it's because the marriage is bad, but it has nothing to do with that. It's because of the sin that they're covering up and it's destroying their marriage. They wonder why their kids are misbehaving. Oh, our kids, Brett, come on, fix our children. They're teenagers and they're causing all kinds of trouble. Sometimes it's not anything to do with your teenagers. It's everything to do with your own sin that's, that's not being dealt with. And you're wondering why you're struggling in life and why things are not working out. It's because the Lord's hand is heavy upon you and it's time to repent. See, the bad news is your sin messes you up. You always, always, always get nailed by sin. You never pull it off. You're never gonna get away with it. You may have done it for a while, maybe even years. But the Bible says, be sure of this. The one thing you can be sure of is your sin will find you out. Numbers 32, 23. Be sure of this, your sin will find you out. It's not the Lord's gonna find you out. It's like, you know, some people think, well, God's gonna get me because I'm sinful. It's not what's happening. The Lord's saying, you're gonna get nailed by your own sin. It always happens. Your sin will find you out. Your sin will be that which catches up to you. So that's some pretty bad news, but I've got some good news for you. You know what's so great about the Lord is he makes everything so amazingly, kind of crazily easy. It's, it's almost too good to be true. That's why people struggle with this so much. The, the idea of what God does when a, a sinner finally comes to their clear senses and says, Lord, forgive me. It's just called repentance, repenting of your sin. That is to say, I'm gonna not go there anymore. I'm gonna break off that sin and do a whole different program. You know, I love all the, the scriptures, you know, Romans chapter eight, verse one, therefore there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know, when you're in sin, you're living with this condemnation, but when you confess your sin, that condemnation goes away and the Lord forgives you. 
Romans 3:26 says God justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Justification is that doctrine where he makes it just as if you'd never sinned. If your sin is unconfessed, you're living in that sin and that sin is plaguing you as we speak. But when you come to Christ and you confess your sins, you become justified, just as if you'd never sinned, totally clean. Acts 13, 39 declares through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything. I love that one. I don't care how bad your sins, everything means everything. No matter how bad your sins are, the Lord can forgive you. Now let me say something about this because some people confuse the repercussions of sin um, with God's forgiveness. When God forgives you, man, he wipes your sin clean and he, won't, he will not hold that sin to you. But if you go murder someone tomorrow, um, you, you can say, Lord, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. And the Lord will forgive you if you're sincere, but you're still gonna go to prison or maybe even get the death penalty because that's the repercussion of sin. And people, uh, on, I use that as an extreme example. Um, sometimes people say, Brett, you know, my wife left me and I said, I'm sorry, and she's supposed to forgive me and now we're supposed to be rosy. Well, sometimes it takes time for a person. Your wife's not the Lord. She has not the same ability to forgive and forget. And it's sometimes difficult, it's sometimes hard. Now, don't get me wrong, the wife needs to try to be as much like the Lord as possible. But man, I love how simple it is to be right before God. That's what matters in eternity. This life, the repercussions of sin can be far reaching and brutal. But I love that in eternity, God will take your sin and forgive you if you repent and turn from your sins. Colossians 3.3 says, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. I love this, you know, because at first I told you your sin is exposed and it is. But when you confess your sins, the Lord takes and hides you in his love. He, he robes you in his righteousness and he, he, he makes it so you can keep living and moving on. Even though others may not forgive you, you might have a history, people might remember your stupid things you've done, but the Lord, he says, I'll hide you in the shadow of my wing and the Lord will give you confidence to walk in that forgiveness. You see, that's the thing about this, um, this verse. I see the atheist who says, ah, there is no God. And basically, as long as I can figure it out in my brain, that's what I'm gonna believe. And man, the pitfall there is big. Believing in a true and living God, there's a reason why God has built that in your, you know, just innate nature to believe. But for the believer, I think it's also dangerous for us to get to this place where we think no one sees me, I'm pulling it off, I'm getting away with my stuff. But meanwhile, your life is being plagued. And like David, the Lord doesn't just let you get off the hook. He, he does it because he loves you. He puts his heavy hand, like David said, his hand was heavy upon me. He does that because he wants you to be free of your sin. Don't forget, sin, the Lord calls it sin, makes it sin, uh, warns against sin. Sin is not bad because God says you can't do it. It's, it's you know, sin is forbidden because it's actually bad for you. It messes you up. That's why God, you know, identifies things as sinful. You might say, well, Brad, I don't, I don't like to think of that as sin. It doesn't matter. God says, if you do that, that's, that's gonna hurt you. That's why I call it sin. I think we need to get perspective on that because the world says, well, we don't think of that as sin at all. We celebrate that. The, world, the Bible says it's sin, but we celebrate it. 
But the problem is when God calls, calls something sin, it's because he wants you to do better than that. He wants you to be healthier, happier, uh, not plagued by your own sin. So the stubborn nature of men is to rebel against God and do what is called sin. And God says, oh, I want you to break off your sins. Not because he's wanting to be the cosmic killjoy, ruining everybody's fun, but because he loves you and wants you to do well. And he wants you to live in his victory that he's given to you by his grace. Listen, the answer's the same whether you're a Christian or an atheist, and that is you gotta repent of your sins and just confess your faith in Christ and say, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and rose up from the grave and that my sins are forgiven. And then right there, right then, if you've confessed that, you become forgiven. It's, as good, it's just a done deal. Um, the Lord took care of it. 2,000 years ago, Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the whole world. The book of Hebrews says he died once for all sin. And I love that we can go to Christ. And by the way, you might think, well, Brett, I've been walking in sin for a lot of years and keeping my secret sins to myself. I don't know that the Lord's gonna be quick to forgive me because I've been in such rebellion for so long. That's the thing about the Lord. He's, that's the only time you see him in the Bible in a picture of being in a hurry is to forgive the sinner. Remember the prodigal son story and the prodigal's sinning, 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 ends up slopping pigs and eating pig slop. He's in total misery. And he says, man, even my father's servants are in better shape than I am. Maybe if I go and beg my father, say, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I make me one of your servants. And he had this little thing he was gonna say. And, and he, so he decides to mosey back home after living in total rebellion and squandering all of his father's money. And before the father, before the guy even gets close, the father sees him off in the distance and runs out to meet him and hugs him and kisses him on the neck, puts a robe and a ring on his finger and kills the fatted calf and celebrates that his son who was lost has now returned. That's the heart of the Lord. He's not gonna sit there and cross his arms and tap his sanctimonious giant toe saying, well, we'll see if you really mean it. We'll see if you're really saved. We'll see if you're sincere. That's not the God we serve. God says, man, if you come and repent, confess, I am faithful, not you're faithful, I am faithful and just to forgive you of all your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's what God does. Man, people that think God is a cosmic killjoy, they do not know God. God is the one who loves the world so much, there's no love that we've seen that even comes close in comparison. Stupid to believe that God is unkind or lacking in compassion or worse yet, not even existent. That's just not the way to go. The way to go is to confess and believe and accept the work of God in your life to be saved. If you're not a Christian, just confess your faith right now. You can say, Lord, I believe in your son, Jesus. Just tell the Lord this right now. I believe in your son, Jesus, that he died on the cross for my sins, that he rose up from the grave, and I'm forgiven. And that heavy hand that's been on your life of sin and guilt and condemnation, the Lord's gonna lift that off your shoulders right now. He does that. And he's not mad at you, but he loves you and he forgives you. Anyone who accepts that, believes that. The Bible says in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth, 
believe in your heart the Lord Jesus and God raised him up from the dead, you will be saved. It's a guarantee. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. The Lord has done it. Man, what a glorious truth that is. And I'd, I'd like to kind of leave it there tonight. If you're one who needs to accept Christ and be saved, do that right now, just accept Jesus. And then I want you to tell someone you know who's a Christian that you accepted Christ and that you are a believer in Jesus. Boy, that's, that's something when you publicly tell someone, I'm no longer an atheist, I now believe in the true and living God. Well, what changed your mind? The Lord builds within people to know that there's a God. And even though I don't understand all the math and the science and origins and all that stuff, whatever, you know in your heart, according to Romans 1, you know that God exists and you know that what I'm saying is true. The question is, are you gonna accept it? That's the question. And then as Christians, don't play games with God. He sees it all. Quickly repent, break off your sins. Blessed Jesus said, are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Man, don't be playing games with God as far as sin goes. Because that's the David, that's what Achan, that's what Moses, that's what Adam and Eve, that's what Ananias and Sapphira, that's what all those guys tried to do. Doesn't work out so good. Don't do that. Big goof. Repent, confess, and be forgiven. And then walk in the joy of our Lord. In Jesus' name, let's pray together. Lord, tonight as we consider this single verse here in Isaiah 47, how thankful we are, Lord, that you are the forgiver of sins, that you're quick to forgive us. Lord, help us not to be like these Babylonian unbelievers who are hardened and prideful in their own minds, thinking that they are, in a sense, their own gods. Lord, we, we are nothing in light of you. But what's amazing is that you, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, you love us. You've got a plan and a purpose for us. And you've put it within our heart to know the truth. Lord, I pray for those people who've been convinced by some college professor or some person who tried to persuade of God's non-existence. Lord, I pray that you just soften hearts and just cause people to hear that voice that comes from Romans chapter one that says, nope, there is a God who's loving, kind, and compassionate. Lord, that those people would soften their hearts and come to know you and accept the work of salvation. Help us, Lord, as Christians to walk in your truth. Bless your church, Lord, tonight. We pray blessing on each person that's tuning in tonight. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.